JMV here with Brian Kahn from Floors to Your Home. Fans, if you're shopping for flooring of any kind, you need to check these guys out. You're going to have the most incredible, totally hassle-free shopping experience ever. JMV, we really appreciate you saying that. That's our goal every day, to offer our customers a quick, easy, and hassle-free experience at all of our Floors to Your Home locations. Fans, it works like this. You see the product you like. It's going to be cheaper than anywhere else. That's for sure. Then you can immediately take it home with you or have it installed. That's right. No hassle, no special order. Just see it, buy it, and take it home, or have it installed. Like three rooms of hardwood, laminate, or waterproof flooring starting at just 349 and they have everything in stock. I'm doing my whole house, and believe me, this is the best shopping experience you'll ever have. Three convenient locations, Avon, Noblesville, and Brookville Road. Who gives the quickest, easiest, and most hassle-free buying experience? Floors to your home. That's who. Earlier this afternoon on the ride with JMV. Welcome back. Ora numero dos. It's the ride with JMV. 93.5, The Fan. Filling in for John, I'm Derek Schultz. Happy holidays. Thanks for making us a part of your Wednesday. Yeah, you guys chimed in on Twitter, and I feel like such an idiot. Um, the best abil- ability is availability. Yeah, that's what I was... <laughs> you know, um, I- I've done radio for like... I don't know, 15 years, something like that. And and I, I have on my little LinkedIn page, it says broadcaster. <laughs> and then I can't come up with that in front of a live microphone where I'm tripping all over myself trying to talk about Braden Smith. So thank you for you guys um, saving my behind there on uh, the best ability is availability. That's that's the case with Braden Smith. He's a good player, but God, you, you need him to be around, especially if you're going to pay him what you're paying him. Um, was not a great night for the Notre Dame Fighting Irish uh, basketball team and our friend Kevin Bowen, co-host of the Wake Up Call, um, right here on these same airwaves. Uh, unfortunately, had to see that one in person with a good mutual friend of ours in Greg Rakestraw. We'll keep it pretty cult-centric here, um, but Kevin, <laughs> uh, you know, 20 points to the Citadel. Man, it, it doesn't get much worse than that, right? You know, it's funny, Derek, I got to my the arena last night, and all of a sudden, you know, we started listening to Don Fisher on the way home, get a little IU action on that update, and I pull out my phone. I'm like, why do I have all these Twitter mentions right now? I'm like, there is no way that many people have been informed on the Notre Dame Citadel basketball. That's, that's one of the things I like about being a Notre Dame basketball fan. When they lose, no one knows. So no, one, <laughs> just, no, one, no one says anything to me. And all of a sudden, I see your tweet which I've absolutely loved scrolling through all the mentions of. Uh, in regards to or in celebration of, you know, Greg Rakestraw and Kevin Bowen go to the Notre Dame Citadel game tonight, what is the most crushing or I forget your exact phrasing of a sporting event that you went to? And some of the answers are just unbelievable there. So thank you for providing Rake and I a little bit of humor uh, on the way home there. But, yeah, 45 points against the Citadel is just so – so embarrassing. And as much as I'd like to sit here and be like, Mike Bray left Micah Shrewsbury, nothing, this and that. I mean, again, the cover was certainly not stocked very full. But, you know, Micah really did not do a whole lot from a transfer portal standpoint. He was – they've got like 10 scholarship dudes. A couple of them were hurt last night. I mean, he, he did not go the, like, uh, I'm going to rehaul everything. It's going to be a very, like, we're going to – or, you know, build it through high school recruits and this and that, and they're paying for it this year. They already lost to Western Carolina. Yeah, 45 last night against the Citadel. Just so pathetic. This is what sums it up. Last thing I'll say on this. The Citadel's best player last night was a walk-on 
under Mike Brandt Notre Dame. I mean, oh. talk about like a little talk about like a movie for for that yeah. kid after every shot. He's screaming to the 130 people in the building about you know, <laughs> this is his city and all that. So beautiful campus, great great time for Rake and I. Uh, absolutely loved his company, but awful awful basketball. Some trivia about me: I have rushed the court one time in my life, and it was at Joyce Center. Um, Troy, Troy Murphy's senior year was my senior year of high school and Troy Murphy, Martin Inglesby, Harold Swanigan, uh, Matt Carroll, that team beat Troy Bell's Boston college team when they were both in the big East to take sole possession of first place. I was not a Notre Dame basketball fan at all, but I was visiting my cousin who was a rabid Notre Dame fan. And he was like, let's let's just go out with all the students. Let's rush the court. So we rushed the court when they won that game. And it's the only time in my life I've ever done that. That is hilarious. Yeah, yeah Troy Bell, like Craig Smith on that Boston College team. Yeah, wow. Uh, that's a throw. I actually have also stormed the floor in that building. Uh, this is the last game I've been to until last night, which, you know, I, I call myself a fan. I really haven't been to many games. Uh, remember when they beat Louisville in five overtimes? Yeah, I do. Yeah, that was like the Russ Smith Louisville team, right? Yeah, that was yeah. A na- yeah, that was a national title Louisville team, 2013, I guess. Yeah, that would have been oh, my wow. um, first year out of college. So yeah, that was just a crazy, crazy, yeah, brave patina. That was back when Notre Dame and Louisville just every game was an overtime game. So a uh, long way to go for Michael Shrewsbury, but even with last night, I remained bullish on him. He did have some hilarious. He had some great post game clips. I, I read it. Uh, or I saw his, it. Yeah, it was great. Uh, calling out his son and everything. It was a. Uh, it was actually pretty. Uh, pretty good. He's an incredible coach. He'll he'll end up getting them back on track. Um, we were unable to connect with with Julian Blackman after p- practice today, but you know, I, I think for all the talk when, when we kind of shift to Colts here about you know Buckner or Pittman or Dio, there have been. Some guys on this team this year, Kevin, that have sort of refound themselves. You know, like Justin Blackman looks like the player that I remember him being a couple of seasons ago. Kenny Moore uh, has certainly falls in that category. Even Quentin Nelson, I, I think, has has kind of bounced back from that really high level of play that we're used to seeing. Um, how critical has that been to the success of the Colts this season? Not just kind of the breakout or the pillar stars, but also the guys that maybe were coming off uh, a not so great season or a not so great couple of seasons and, and refinding themselves. Yeah, I think it's a great point you bring up. Um, I think back to Chris Bauer's season-ending press conference last year and amongst all the blame, and obviously he deserved a a chunk of it at the end of last year, he said something in that presser that, I don't know, I think some people were a little taken aback by, but I I couldn't agree more with. And, you know, it it was something to the effect of, we need our best players to play like they are our best players again. And, you know, you just named several of them that did not do that last year and and again you know amidst all the blame you know Ballard was right and several of those guys have gotten back to that to that level um and I don't know if Julian Blackman qualifies as one of their best players but it's interesting you bring him up because we were actually chatting with him today in the locker room and I I could not believe this when I started to think about it uh, because he has been injured you know in his NFL career Mm -hmm. the 14 games the last two seasons uh, he's played the most snaps of any Colts player this season. Really? And I, I wow. bet if you would have taken a bet at the start of the year, like who will play the most snaps for the Colts this year, uh, no one would have bet on Julian Blackman, let alone him being very high on the list. Uh, I think he's a super instinctual player, really, really important, um, very versatile, kind of the quarterback of that secondary. For those that went to Grand Park during training camp, he was out due to a hamstring injury for a large chunk of it. 
mean, you will have not heard a louder human on the sidelines trying to get that young secondary kind of ready, pre-snap, those sorts of things, you know, during camp. And if you just look back on Sunday or, or Saturday, you know, he obviously has the interception on the overthrow that kind of sealed it. But, I mean, he made a hell of a play there on Pittsburgh's sideline to scoop up that fumble recovery on the EJ speed, you know, strip there early in the third quarter. And that is such like a massive play where, you know, the whistle, you know, they don't call fumble on the field. So, you know, you have to have guys kind of play after the whistle a little bit. And then Blackman does a great job of not panicking in that moment and like securing the fumble, getting two feet down just in case, you know, it was deemed a fumble and that it could get overturned because there's got to be, got to be a clear recovery there. So, um, I, I'm glad you brought up Blackman because, again, you know, he's not a side-of-the-building guy, but I, I do think he's been a really important piece for them this season. Are we going to see Jonathan Taylor on Sunday? I think there's big optimism. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of optimism. I, you know, tomorrow and Friday are going to be very important days for sure. him. And, you know, you can say that about any injured guy. But, you know, specifically with Taylor, it wasn't as much a pain threshold thing with this right thumb. It's can he function as a runner? Like, can he hold onto the football and can he pass protect? Well, I mean, you would think that, you know, today was just a walkthrough. I mean, yeah, he's full today. It's a good sign. But all that means is he would have been full if they had a practice, or at least that would have been the hope. Uh, but it's all about how he reacts to a practice setting. And I would think you're going to want to get him into some, you know, physical activity, whether that's guys kind of slapping at the ball or, you know, again, maybe he does some pass protection stuff. Um, but, yeah, three weeks removed from the right thumb surgery, this seems to be kind of the game that people had circled a little bit on it. So I'd say good news there because Zach Moss, for what it's worth, was a DNP or w- w- would would not have gone had they practiced today. I don't really want to think about this because I'm trying to be optimistic and glass half full about the season, but if the Colts, let's say, go 10-7 and seven and miss the playoffs, are you still looking at this as a positive season and, and a step forward because – I think under normal circumstances, you'd say, oh, God, you know, 10 and 7, missed the playoffs, 17th pick in the draft, blah. But I, I think actually under these circumstances, I, I would feel like this is something positive for them to build on. Yeah, it's, it's a good question. Um, I, I, I tend to kind of side if you, you know, made me pick, you know, positive or not, you know, just one of those two, I would say positive. You know, because for me, a lot of this is about more of individuals and mm-hmm. you know, Anthony Richardson and the small sample size. You had to like what you saw. Next on that list would have been Shane Sykin for me. And how do you have not, you know, how have you not liked what what you've seen from Sykin so far? Um, and then even some of the others, whether it was, you know, bounce back here for Kenny Moore or Bernard Ryman kind of taking that next jump as a guy that you feel like you can trust over on that left side. Maybe you haven't got it from Quiddy Pay, but maybe Dio Dengbo has showed you a little bit more. Um, so I think, you know, some of the Michael Pittman, you know, has definitely established himself. So, I think when you think back to, you know, a lot of the preseason storylines, even non-Richardson division, you'd be pleased with it. I think the bummer that you would have with it, Derek, is like, I mean, the schedule, it was a huge reason why I thought the Colts would win seven games. I just thought the schedule was a joke in May, and I think it turned out to be even a bigger joke when you look at just all the quarterback attrition they've had. I was just talking about this with Eddie Garrison a few minutes ago, and, you know, if you think back to – November, now into December, and then January, and you look at the opposing quarterbacks you face, Gardner Minshew has been the more experienced and or accomplished quarterback in every single game but one, and that one would be Baker Mayfield in Tampa. 
Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, even in that game, you know, Baker gets banged up early and, you know, who knows had he not, you know, how that would have unfolded. But, I mean, to play a half of an NFL season and Gardner Minshew comes into a game with a more decorated resume than the opposing quarterback. Now, is he better than C.J. Stroud in Week 18? No, but outside of Stroud, you probably make the case he's better than Mac Jones. He's better than Bryce Young. You know, he's better than Mitch uh, Trubisky last week, you know, Taylor Heineke this week. So that would be the bummer. It's that, you know, next year, just quarterback luck. Granted, you should have Richardson, but, the, you know, that that, that quarterback you know, schedule is not going to be there. You play the AFC East. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, some better quarterbacks there. Even the NFC North has got, I think, better QBs. You know, if you finish first or second in the division, you're obviously going to play much better teams in those crossover games as well. So uh, just the continued, you know, no division title since 2014, you know, all, all, only one playoff one in that span, I think that would be where some of the bummer lies just because these opportunities don't grow on trees. Yeah, and just kind of with where they would have sat, sat right now where you control your destiny and then to fall short. I mean, you're assuming if, if they go 10-7 and seven and miss the playoffs, you're assuming a loss to the Texans, right? I mean, that's that, that's kind of the right, scenario right. generator where – where you would have that. Kevin Bowen joins us, 93.5-1075, the fan. You can listen to him every morning with Andy Sweeney on the uh, on, on the wake-up call. You had mentioned Dio, and, and this is not a knock on, like, Quiddy Pay or, or, or anything like that, but I, I think Dio's getting to the point now where he's, like, the true edge threat. Like, I'm not talking production. We we There have been other guys that have been productive. Like, you know, Yannick Ngakwe ended up with, what, like, nine, ten sacks last year? But they were all when the game was, you know, basically decided. He he just kind of walked into a couple. It felt like it, it feels like Dio's become like a game wrecker type player. Um, is he the guy that, at edge finally that Chris Boward has been searching for for all these years? Yeah, you know, it, it, it's interesting, Derek. I mean, a great year for him. Um, and honestly, this is something you could probably reminisce about a bit. You know, I'll never forget when they drafted Dio. In my opinion, it's the draft pick Ballard's probably had the most infatuation with Aldeni. I mean, he was obsessed with him. He wanted him in in round one. But he compared him to those New York Giants defensive linemen from those Super Bowl teams. You know, when you think about, you know, the Justin Tucks of the world and, you know, Jason Pierre-Paul, Matthias Kiwanuka. And, Umanura. Uh, you know, yeah. Yeah, OC, yeah. Yeah. I mean, those guys, just those tall and, and, and versatile and, um, you know, whatever, basketball power forwards with, with a lot of meat on him. Uh, that, that's what he kind of envisioned with Dio. And, you know, towards Achilles in the draft process, obviously it was going to take a little bit of time, but you've seen it. I mean, he's been, I think, really, really good. And to your point about Yadi Kingakwe, sacks are not the end-all, be-all. You know, honestly, Quiddy Pay is going to end the year with a notable sack total. But if you look at the hurries or you look at the, you know, pressures, I mean, his numbers don't even sniff, you mm-hmm. know, where the sacks are. Um, now he certainly is a much better run defender than Yannick Ngakwe, but yeah, Dio's been huge. I I don't know if he's like the ideal edge rusher. Like I still view that as a, if you can just flat out get a speed rusher that just strikes so much fear in that opposing offensive tackle of he's going to get up field and you better whatever running back or tight end ship him or else. I still think that is a big time missing ingredient for this team. You know, Dio, I think ideally would be more of a versatile guy. You can move him in and in and out and, you know, probably more of a power rusher than a speed guy, but still uh, really, really important piece. And who knows, maybe he's kind of one of those under the radar contract extensions they do in the off season. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is year three of four for him. And I think he would have some merit to want that 
I hear coming up in 2024. Feels like Gus Bradley is a guy who people in this town run hot and cold with. Um, you know, if you go back to the tweets when the Colts were down 13 <laughs> nothing, what they were saying about him compared to maybe at the end of the game were, were drastically different. How would you grade Gus as, as you know, it, it's almost like a little bit of an awkward situation, a holdover from the last staff and all that. And, and I think he is, um, I, I think he's had to try to maximize some glaring weaknesses, uh, particularly in the secondary. Like the Cincinnati game, you would look on paper and say, oh, God, he did a really horrible job here. But then you'd be looking at it and, and also say, well, he had to pick his poison. And unfortunately, all the poisons available to him were, were lethal. Yeah, that's a, that's a tough one for me. I, I You know, okay, what grade would you give? A B is what popped into my head. Okay. There's certainly stats that would say higher than that. I mean, hell, I think they're already at a franchise mark for sacks in a season. But I also have to acknowledge a little bit, like, he's been given one of, I think, the easier tests of NFL teams offensively. Again, this kind of gets back to the quarterback debate that we've seen here. I mean, they haven't really had kind of a living, breathing quarterback passing offense very often here in the second half of the season. Um, But, you know, to your point, I mean, the corner has been, you know, a, a massive youth movement there. And he's, you know, managed that, I think, fairly well. Um, I thought maybe they held on to Shaq Leonard a little too, too long. I thought EJ Speed should have been playing more than Shaq a little bit, you know, kind of earlier than they eventually kind of, you know, finally went there. Um, and then D-line-wise, I mean, certainly we just talked about it. There have been a variety of guys that have really stepped it up, you know, from a pass rush standpoint. And the run defense has, you know, been, I think, better when Grover's in the lineup versus when he's not. So, I'd say solid B. I, I find it interesting. This goes back to Matt Eberflus and Frank Reich. And, again, you know, Eberflus was the Chris Ballard hire there with Josh McDaniels. It's interesting how you've had two, you know, relatively aggressive offensive-minded head coaches in Frank Reich and Shane Sykin, and yet the coordinators have not matched that personality. Both mm-hmm. of them have tended to be you know, less blitzing, less aggressive, less man coverage. And just, like, philosophically, that's always kind of been odd to me. You know, I would assume as a head coach, you would kind of want to match that. Maybe, you know, they view it. Uh, and I know, again, Frank didn't pick Eberflus, but, uh, and, you know, I guess Shane just kind of confirmed Gus Bradley. I'd be curious if, if either of them, and obviously Frank won't get it, but if Shane ever has defensive coordinator search, what would he be looking for stylistically in that? So, having said all that, again, I still think Gus deserves a nice grade. And, you know, there's been many parts of the season where the defense has kind of had to do the, the heavy lifting for you. Yeah, I mean, it, it looks like a group that if you can add a corner in the offseason to this group and, and really kind of solidify things in the defensive secondary, and I know they have some contract situations that they're going to have to work out. Blackman, for one, is, is in a contract year, I believe. Um, it could be a, a really good unit in 2024, I feel like, if they just patch some of the, the glaring holes that are there. Uh, Kevin Bowen joins us. Uh, switching gears quickly, I, I wanted to talk a little bit of hoops with you because I, I heard Kravitz say this on the show, and, and anybody that's lived in Indianapolis for a minute knows that, that Bob Kravitz is not – a rose-colored glasses type person. If, if he tells you that he's high on somebody, it means he really believes it. Uh, I almost drove my car off the bridge when I heard him say this morning that not only is Purdue a contender, but they're, they're, they're going to win the whole thing. Um, are you ready to go there yet uh, on December 20th with Purdue? Yeah, it's funny. I was there like this time last year, Derek, and I haven't kind of gotten back there this time this year. But what I think has stood out, me about Purdue so far, and I said this once we got done with Bob this morning, look at the four wins over the top 12 teams. 
all four of those wins, all away from home, of course, they all have been such different wins, in my opinion. Um, you go back to the Gonzaga game in Maui, Fletcher Lawyer really struggled. Last year when Lawyer struggled, this team struggled. Um, and you were able to win that game. Then the next night, Edie gets into rare foul trouble. I mean, Zach Edie does not get into foul trouble for a big guy. And it's a rock fight. That's how Tennessee wants to play it. And you survive that one. Then you get to Marquette in the championship game. Marquette can score. And you, you get into a bit of a shootout. And you win that. And then, obviously, Arizona on Saturday when Tommy Lloyd is you know pretty content with um, you know, trying to say, all right, let's make Edie more of a facilitator. Let's not let him, you know, have the 32-point, whatever he had against Alabama type of game. Um, you know, Braden Smith and Fletcher Lawyer, you know, hit nine threes. And, you know, those two look like the Indiana boys playing in the Pacers arena. So, uh, that to me, I don't know how you look at that and just say that is incredibly encouraging and a great sign for March. Because you, you know this full well. I mean, you know, these six-game runs in March are not like – some linear line where exactly the script you draw up is exactly how it turns out. Butler could have lost on the opening weekend in both of those championship runs that they had. So it's about surviving and advancing. It's about winning in different ways. It's about when teams try and take you away and make you play left-handed. Can you do that? And again, to me, Purdue has done that in a variety of ways against really, really good teams away from home this season. So uh, that's a great sign. And if you were also going to just sit here and say, all right, who is your national champion pick on whatever today is, December 20th or 21st, whatever it is, you know, there'd be a tier of, what, five or six teams that I'd probably put on there. And if you told me to pick one of those, I guess I probably would go with Purdue just because, like, I've watched Kansas a couple times, not been overly blown away. I've watched Arizona, not overly blown away. You know, same thing with qualify for maybe UConn or uh, Marquette or you know, I'm sure I'm forgetting some teams. So, you know, Purdue, when I've watched them this year, sure, the Northwestern game happened, but there's a lot of really, really good I've seen as well. So I guess when you kind of break it down like that, I know I don't say it with the same sort of conviction that Bob said it this morning, but I'm like, you know what? I think that makes a lot of sense considering how they've looked, especially against quality opponents away from home. Yeah, I mean, the fact that Arizona is – ridiculously athletic and big everywhere and they really I mean you know Purdue had that stretch in the middle of the second half where they they couldn't throw the ball in the ocean it was like eight nine minutes in the week got down to four but outside of that they you know Purdue outclassed Arizona they didn't just win like you know what I mean like Braden Smith and and Fletcher Lawyer ate them up and and that's what really kind of blew me away even more than what they did in Maui because if if they're going to play at that level then yeah it's hard to find a a candidate that's going to be able to beat them. Last thing here, man, a um, couple months in, I'm, I'm really enjoying the show with Andy, but I, I wanted to ask you, how has that been going? Because I just don't think people have an appreciation for um, how much of a challenge that can be when, when you airdrop, you know, not only for Andy, but for you, you airdrop somebody in and then it's a two man show and you're, you're getting to know each other. You're, you're very much kind of building the plane as you fly it. But I, I really like um, what you guys have been able to do so far with it. Well, thank you for, for saying that. I do miss our monthly meetings of life working with Jake Query. That, you know, I, it was therapy sessions for me that, that you guided me through there for the last couple of years. <laughs> many, so many long phone calls, those. yes. <laughs> yeah, I do miss those gatherings that we had. But, yeah, first off, I've just, like, been amazed by, like, life for Andy Sweeney. Uh, you know, all of a sudden he makes a huge move to – a totally different market and you know his wife is pregnant with her first child and he's been here for a month and 34 weeks and here comes the baby like out of nowhere so I can't even imagine him going through all of that but 
I've really enjoyed it. I mean, style-wise, he works extremely, extremely hard, and I really, really appreciate that. And, you know, comes up with a lot of big, good ideas and kind of challenges me in ways that I, I just didn't think about, you know, kind of ways to approach it. Uh, super passionate about, you know, a variety of sports. And I think he's done a great job kind of embracing, you know, what our market's all about. And, um, you know, hopefully that'll, that'll continue, of course, when we get to the month of May and things like that. So, it, it definitely has been different. I mean, stylistically, he's much different than, than Jake, so that has been different. But at the same time, I think it made total sense from a station standpoint to spread it out. Jake, to me, you know, sleep schedule-wise and just style-wise, screams a little bit more of, you know, midday action. So um, I think that part of it makes sense. Uh, but, yeah, I've uh, I've really enjoyed working with Andy. He's a good dude. That's a good point. Jake is less cranky. I'll, I'll give him that. He's he's a little less cranky <laughs> since moving to middays, so that, that has been helpful. At KBowen1070 on Twitter, Wish TV, Kevin's Corner podcast. Dude is everywhere, and also, of course, in the mornings with Andy on the wake-up call. Appreciate it, my man. Uh, Merry Christmas to you and the kids and the family, and I uh, hope to run, to you, uh, run into you again soon here. Uh, same to you guys and James, Derek. Always good hearing from you, man. It's our buddy Kevin Bowen. Um, good stuff from him as always. And I'm, I'm assuming if you're listening to this show right now, you also listen to the morning show. But um, one thing that you guys should definitely do every Tuesday, I think around eight ish, eight o'clock. Rick Carlisle. That that's become like appointment listening. Rick Carlisle every week. Kevin and Andy. He's great on the air. He tells you what he thinks. It's not a bunch of coach, coach speak nonsense. Uh, if you're not doing it already, make a point of it. Rick Carlisle um, every Tuesday on on uh, the Wake Up Call with Kevin and Andy. We come back on the show. Back into the Colts. We'll go down to Hotlanta. John Chuckery, 92.9 The Game. It's Quarry. Oh, my God. I almost said it's Quarry and Schultz. Sorry. Old habits die hard. <laughs> it's the ride with JMV. It is very much not Quarry and Schultz. Here on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. <laughs> Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Taking on the Falcons, I figured it was a time to catch up with an old friend. He joins us now on the guest line. John, it's been a minute. Thanks so much for spending some time with us, and happy holidays. Man, always good to be on with you guys, and, uh, you know, happy holidays to you all as well. So I'll start with this uh, because I think you can probably go either way. The, the Colts just had an opponent where the Steelers were coming off a brutal loss, and it ended up being a really good time to catch the Steelers. Um, Falcons are coming off a brutal loss to the league's worst team. Is this a good time or a bad time to be playing Atlanta? Because I think sometimes teams that are crumbling either keep crumbling or sometimes they have a game like that, it's a wake-up call, and then they bounce back. Uh, which does Atlanta fall under in, in your eyes? 
you know, it, it's so hard because, again, the, the biggest thing about the Falcons this year has been their inconsistency. And you don't know from week to week to week what you're going to get. And obviously with the change in quarterback now, Desmond Ritter has been benched. Taylor Heineke is going to take over at quarterback. Look, I know they'll play hard. I know they'll play, you know, for Arthur Smith. I mean, there's a lot of chatter about whether or not he's going to be here going into next year and, you know, things like that. But they will play hard. It's their last home game of the year. So I expect them to come out with a pretty good effort. I think that they'll be, you know, a little bit amped up because mathematically the division is still in play. But realistically, they don't really probably have much of a shot because there's got to be about 47 things that fall into place besides just them winning. So I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, and that's been the problem for the Falcons. They're in the worst division in the history of the NFL from a winning percentage standpoint, the worst of all time in the NFL, and they can't take advantage of it. And so you just don't know week to week what you're going to get with this team. Is it over for Desmond Ritter, John? I believe so. Um, Look, I think that he'll be around as a backup quarterback because he is under a rookie contract. He's a third-round pick. He could be a competent quarterback. You know, if you have to start him for a game or two here or there as a backup, you can get away with that. But they have to – I mean, if they don't win the division, they have to draft quarterback at at whatever the pick is going to be, 9, 10, 11, whatever it's going to be. They have to draft quarterback in the first round. I don't think there's really any other option. Even if you want to bring a, a rookie quarterback in and have him compete with Desmond Ritter, I, I think Desmond Ritter's days as a starter are done, and you have to draft quarterback in the first round. Yeah, and, and that's kind of the, the interesting approach that Atlanta's taken is that, uh, you know, in a lot of times when you're using top 10 picks on skill position guys like they've done with Pitts and Robinson and guys like that, um, it's because you have the quarterback in place first, and, and it seems like it's kind of gone the opposite. And, and I get they had Matt Ryan there at the, at the end of the window. Um, why, in your opinion, did it not work for Ritter? Because, you, I mean, if you just look at a sheet of paper, the completion percentage, things like that, I mean, it, it seems to be okay, but then again, it felt like every week he was passing for a buck fifty, and and even in the NFL where it, it's not what it was at the peak, like Manning Brady era, where guys were going for three fifty, four hundred breeze, guys like that every single week, um, one hundred fifty yards usually isn't going to get it done. You know, it's the turnovers, and yeah. you know, for a guy who did not turn the football over in the final four starts that he had last year, you know, again, did he make some plays at the end of last year that were turnover worthy as they're as they're rated? Yes, no doubt about it. He's a, he was a rookie, but he didn't turn the football over. You get into this year and you look at the fumbles and you look at specifically the red zone. Look, that's what killed him last week against Carolina. That interception in the red zone just crushed him. I mean, they couldn't kick the field goal and take the lead and extend the lead and put the game away, and they allowed you know Carolina to, to drive the length of the field and, and kick a field goal to win it. But his red zone turnover specifically – have just doomed this team. And that's that's been the thing that – that's why he's been benched twice. I mean, it's because of, you know, his red zone turnovers. I mean, that's just the thing that they have not been able to overcome. And the problem is, look, you're in week 15, and these mistakes continue to happen, and they can't. Like, again, it would be one thing if he was growing out of this, but he's doing the same exact things that he was doing in week two or three, and now we're in week 15 for the season. 
John Chuckery hosts nights 92.9 The Game in Atlanta, and he's our guest on the guest lines, The Ride with JMV, 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. It feels a little bit, John, like Atlanta these last four or five seasons has been somewhat similar to the Colts in, in that it's, it's not that they're bad. Um, they're just not any good. <laughs> and it's a tough place to be, right? right? Where, where you feel like um, things are kind of stuck in neutral. Is that the feeling down there? Yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, look, they haven't made the playoffs since 2017. So that that was the year after the Super Bowl run, right? So they haven't made the playoffs since 2017. And if you look, if you look across the board, there are very few teams that have not made the playoffs since 2017 in a five, six year period. Like there are very few teams that that can be attached to. So when you don't even get yourself into the playoffs and, and what else is obviously, you know, frustrating is their division is dreadful. Like they have a lousy division that they play in and it's been lousy for a few years, you know, but, they have not taken advantage of it and they haven't been able to figure, you know, a way around it. And look again, they're probably going to be starting their fourth quarterback in four years, you know, with this franchise, that's not a good place to be. When you have four new quarterbacks starting in a four year period, you're going to be stuck in neutral. That that's, that's a franchise killer. If you can't find any consistency at the most important position on the field, are they a trade up candidate? In the draft but with Williams in May, or, or do they sit around and wait maybe for somebody, you know, Penix, uh, Daniel, somebody like that to fall to them? You know, Thomas Dimitrov, the old GM, would have been a trade-up candidate, but under Terry Fontenot as the new GM, he has not been a guy that has traded up or even traded back in the, in the first round. So I don't get the sense. I mean, look, if they're – if they're somewhere in the eight, nine, ten kind of range, okay, and they're and they don't win the division, they'll get their hands on. You know, it may not be Caleb Williams or maybe Jaden Daniels, depending on how far he moves up. But again, a Drake May or something like that. Like I think, I think three of those quarterbacks will be somewhere around the first ten picks. Because again, Marvin Harrison and some of these other guys, they're going to go top four, five, six. You know, those some of those guys are going to go really high. But I think you'll be able to get your hands on – and I do look at the quarterback position as Caleb Williams, Drake May, and Jaden Daniels. Like, that's the top three guys that really are available. I think they can get their hands on one of them without having to go and trade up. may not be necessarily the guy that they want, but it may be one of those three guys at the top that is available. As you mentioned, John, season still at least clinically alive for the Falcons. They're probably going to have to win out in order to make the playoffs, but – Right. What's, an, what's an area, just knowing whatever you know about the Colts, where you believe that the Falcons can take advantage or, or one area where they've been consistently good that we might see pop up again in Sunday's matchup? Well, look, their defense has played really well. You know, I mean, they, again, are they a they're, – they're a function of – let's put it this way. Defensively, they're a function of some of the teams that they have played against. And they have been able to get stops, hold teams to not many points – um, they don't give up tons of yards. They're a much better sack team than what they've been over the last few years. So, you know, again, could they line up against some of the elite offenses, Miami, Kansas City, and teams like that? Probably not. But they've been able to hold their own defensively. And I do think that, look, they've not gotten blown out in, in very many games. So, 
you know, they keep everything close. They keep everything, you know, hung around. If they can just score some points, you know, their defense can play well enough against some of these teams like the Colts that they can make hay and they can find a way to win. But, again, when you're scoring seven points and you have three turnovers, you're not going to beat anybody. You're not, you're not going to beat, you know, the, the University of Georgia, you know, doing those kinds of things. So, again, that's the problem is their defense can play with a lot of teams in the league, but when you can't score any points and you're scoring 19 points, you know, per game, uh, you know, again, I, and, and Arthur Smith has never had a 30-point game since he's been the Falcons coach. It's just tough that you have to score at least – at least something in the NFL. You can't mm-hmm. afford to just go in and score seven points. You mentioned the dogs, John, and the last thing I'll leave you with this because I'm just personally I'm fascinated by it. You know, the fact that Georgia hadn't lost in almost three years and then they lose mm-hmm. by single digits to Alabama and you fall all the way out because of the log jam that we had, like this unprecedented <laughs> log jam in the college football right. playoff. How is their season being viewed down there? Is it considered a failure or is it considered, eh, you know, just a, a, a confluence of bad luck, I guess? I, I, I don't think it's a failure because, look, if you get to the playoffs, you're still doing something historic. But Again, there's there's nothing to sneeze at with a 12 and one season, and you're in the SEC championship game. And I'll be honest with you, there's no reason to think that they won't be one, two, three going into next year with Carson Beck back. They they have the number one recruiting class. You know, it's National Signing Day today. Georgia's number one in the country as far as recruiting goes. There's no reason to think that they won't be one, two, three going into next year. And look, the mindset has been. The idea of winning three titles in a row, that's not been done since the 1930s, right? I mean, so, again, you've had back-to-back national champions. You're 12-1. and You were 12-0 and through the regular season. Nobody's looking at it as a failure. It's just, you know, again, it's one of those things that, okay, we'll line up and go back at it next year, and we've got our quarterback back and still have plenty of skill position people, still have plenty of defensive linemen that, you know, are going to be back. So, Again, you just line up and go at it next year. At JMCH316 on X Twitter, nightly on 92.9 The Game and 92.9thegame.com as well. Buddy, it's great to hear your voice again. Thanks so much for hopping on with us, and hope you enjoy the game coming up here on Sunday, and happy holidays uh, once again, and best wishes for 2024. Hey, listen, always good to be with you guys, and uh, appreciate it, and uh, you know, we'll chat again here soon. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. This is kind of weird to admit, Mark, but and I hope it doesn't creep you out. When I was typing up my show prep yesterday, um, I could still rattle your phone number off by heart. I, I think that's how many times Jake and I had you on the old show. Like, I, I just knew it. I didn't even have to look at it in my phone. That's very flattering, Derek. I appreciate that. <laughs> I, I, I fall victim to this, and I think we all do. I, I, I try not to. It's an 82-game season. It's uh, It's very long. There are ebbs and flows. But we have a 25-game sample size here with the Pacers, and 
you know, the, the defense is what it is, right? They're giving up 127 points per game. It's an historically bad defense uh, to this point. What's your concern level? And and I guess also uh, how much better can it be? Like, can, can this, with this personnel, and let's assume that Nemhard and, and Smith and, and the, those guys come back and, and play healthy to the level that we're used to them playing, can this be a, a competent level basketball team on that defensive side, or, or do they need to make a move? Yeah, I, I, I think they can be competent defensively. I think they've already proven it. They've done it in certain games, you know, when they really had to. Uh, if you put a certain lineup out there, one that would include Neesmith, for example, you know, you can be okay, adequate defensively, but some of these guys just don't have a defensive mentality. But I think, Derek, at the beginning of the year, you know, I didn't make a prediction. I don't really like predictions. I don't know what you thought. But, you know, right now they have a 13-12 and 12 record. Uh, if they finish the season a few games over 500, people will probably be okay with that, right? You'll probably get in the playoffs, and, and uh, that shows improvement from winning 35 games last year. Uh, but they have kind of teased us a little bit. You know, they've had some good stretches. Of course, they got to the final game of that in-season tournament. Uh, they're such an explosive team offensively that it really gets your hopes up at times. But they're just not mature enough yet to sustain success, I don't think. You know, they don't deal with success that well. You look back over the course of the season, whenever they've had you know, like a good win on the road, they would come back and lose a home game. In that tournament, they, they put you know a nice run together and they've had a huge drop off since then, you know, losing four in a row, not counting the loss to the Lakers. So um, they're probably right about where we thought they would be, you know, speaking kind of objectively at the beginning of the year, but they certainly need improvement uh, defensively. But I think more than defensively, Derek, they need to be a better rebounding team. And yeah. I think they can accomplish that uh, by playing two bigs together. I'm, I'm a proponent of playing either Smith or Isaiah Jackson with Turner and see how that goes. I would think that would be interesting to see how that goes. Have we underrated Smith's absence? Because I, I think you know, maybe the stats don't jump out at you, but I think you could argue over the first you know six weeks of the season that he was maybe like one of their most important players, honestly, when you got beyond Halliburton. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, he didn't have a big sample size on three-point shooting, but he's shooting, shooting over 70% you know, from the three-point line. I got I got stats in front of me, actually. He, uh, you know, he went 14 to 21 from the three-point line. He wouldn't keep that up over the course of the season, but I think it's safe to say he's a good three-point shooter, and he gives you other things as well. Uh, it gives you another big body around the basket. I just think they need a, another big body around the basket to rebound better and to help Turner. You know, Turner is doing okay, but he's not going to be able to compete with the, uh, you know, Embiid's of the world or some of the other better centers. So I think you got to get him help with another body. And you can sub out Obi Toppin. You know, he he can score, he can shoot, but he's not a defender. He's not a rebounder. I think, you know, Rick Carlisle said that he's looking to make lineup changes tonight, so that'll be interesting. I think you could see perhaps Toppin out of it. Maybe Buddy Heald won't start. And I think Neese Smith has a great chance of starting now. I like Matherin in the starting lineup personally. Uh, I mean, he's a future player for you. You got to see what you have. But their current issues with the lineup they have or with the roster they have, because they've got some really promising guys coming off the bench. And uh, I, uh, I think the front office has done a really good job of assembling this roster, a young roster with a lot of raw talent. 
Uh, I think Buddy Heald's kind of in the way of everything. You know, I, he didn't play well off the bench, so you almost have to start him to get anything out of him. But I just think he's in the way of the progress of the team, so it'll be interesting to see what they do with him. But, uh, again, I think a lot of uh, their answers uh, could be found on the current roster. Yeah, it's funny that you bring up Heald because I think last season he was very valuable to what they were doing, and, and, and it just it doesn't seem like – uh, a marriage anymore that makes much sense, and I think part of that is is with him struggling, and, and he's just not shooting the ball anywhere close, especially from three point range that he did last season through the first two months here, and and with it being a contract year, I, I think it makes a lot of sense to that maybe if the Pacers did make a move, that he would be part of whatever move that would be. Yeah, I mean the fact that he's in a contract year is what really makes him expendable. You know, he's not likely to be part of your future. Uh, he's going to want. He's got a huge contract now, over twenty million, and he's going to win another big one. He won't get that kind of contract, I don't think. But he wants a major contract. He really doesn't fit. I mean, is he better than Matherin? I don't think so. Not overall. And so, but you're starting him ahead of Matherin, trying to get something out of him. Those kind of things just don't make sense. And Buddy's a good guy, and he's a decent player. You know, he's averaging about 12 and a half points a game. He's actually shooting better from the three-point line than it seems. He's at 38%. It doesn't seem like he's shooting that well to me anyway. But uh, I, I would think that a contending team out there somewhere would see him as a guy they could add uh, to boost their scoring off the bench. And, you know, you can't get a lot for him given his contract situation. But get something, get him out of the way play your younger guys more than have a better grip on what you do have. We're talking with Mark Monteith, longtime Pacers rider, and you can catch his columns at the IBJ. He joins us here on the ride with JMV, 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. Uh, you've been around this team for a long time, so there have been a couple of players that, that have had to do this. I, I think we're seeing in his struggles coming out of the in-season tournament that, that Tyrese Halliburton is, is having to adjust to teams putting their focus and attention on him. Um I'm sure the Pacers went through this with Paul George 10-whatever years ago. I actually heard Rick Carlisle talk about them when, when he was an assistant on Larry Bird's staff going through it later in, in Reggie Miller's career as a 30-year-old and, and not just running him ragged off of screens but catering the offense a little bit more because of how um, some of those Knicks teams were able to take him away. Um, how important will that be in, in the continued maturation of Tyrese Halliburton to kind of um, adjust and evolve because we that's what you have to do as a superstar player? Yeah, no question. No question. I think the fact that Halliburton uh, is focused on passing, I mean, he's obviously a great scorer, uh, but the fact that he loves to pass um, makes it doable. You know, I think he, I think he's happy with a game where maybe he scores 10 or 12 points and has a dozen assists or 15 assists. So I don't think you have to do that much offensively to get him scoring. I think they have other guys who can score. Uh, he's, you know, a true point guard who's just who happens to be an exceptional shooter, uh, particularly from the three-point line. So I think he'll be okay. You know, I think he's still going through growing pains. He's still a young guy. Um, he's learning about stardom. You know, Rick Carlisle, Carlisle made a statement when he was here the first time as a head coach that has always stuck in my mind. Uh, he was actually talking about a guy who played well in the preseason and then wound up getting cut. And he had a couple big games in the preseason and people got kind of excited about him. And then he tailed off and it didn't make the team. And Rick said that uh, success is an obstacle. And that's always stuck with me because it, it really is. You know, when things start going well, 
sometimes people uh, either don't try as hard, they get a little cocky, or in the case of a guy like Halliburton, defenses start focusing on you. So success is an obstacle, and dealing with it is a real challenge, particularly for young guys. And Halliburton, I think, is kind of experiencing that. Now he's had an injury, and that's a factor as well. But, you know, I think he needs to – he just needs to mature more, get a little stronger, um, maybe stop skipping back on defense when he hits a big shot, (laughs) that kind of thing. I was never comfortable with that. You know, you're skipping. You know, that really doesn't look like an NBA player to me. But uh, but he's, he's a smart kid. He's really good. He's going to be even better. You know, he really does give the franchise a lot of hope for the future. But he's got to grow, too. And, you know, hey, Reggie Miller went through this. Reggie Miller played a lot of seasons before he became the Reggie Miller people remember. He was kind of a sidekick to Chuck Burson Mm -hmm. for a few years. And uh, so, you know, there's nothing wrong with Halliburton. And I think everything that's happened is kind of to be expected. Uh, But he still has some processes to go through, just like the other guys do. Yeah, it's interesting, kind of going back to to one of your points about, you know, their their success. Um, If you would swap out the Milwaukee, Philly, Boston wins with the Chicago, Charlotte, Portland home losses, Pacers are still 13 and 12, but folks are probably like, yeah, you know what, this is okay. And, and, And even for somebody like Halliburton, maybe the secret's not out about him as much, but you win those high profile games on a big stage that people are watching and suddenly the expectations really, really ramp up. Yeah, no question. I think, you know, that in-season tournament was a great run. I think it looked to me like the Pacers just took it more seriously than some of the other Mm -hmm. teams did. They got excited about it. Whereas I don't think Philly and Boston, you know, were really into it as much. You know, those Boston, you know, has contended for championships. Philly's used to being good. For a team that's been a losing team like the Pacers, that tournament seemed like a bigger deal. And they played well, and they won. They deserved to win. But I just think they won partly because they were just into it more. They took those games more seriously. So, you know, it all evens out. So they've lost four in a row. You know, again, not counting that loss to the Lakers, which doesn't count on the record. But So they're 13-12, and 12, and that's about where they probably should be right now. That shows improvement over last year. If they can stay relatively healthy over the course of the season, I think they can finish with a winning record to make the playoffs, and that will count as progress and it's another step forward you know for the future if the defense stays as it is um do you believe there will be some sort of a personnel move or even maybe not rick carlisle himself but even maybe a a a, a move on the staff uh to try to give that unit a jolt good chance of that yeah i think certainly i mean when i say that there the answers to their issues might be on the roster that doesn't mean they shouldn't ever make any changes or they sure. won't make some tweaks. I'm sure they will. You know, you just don't know what opportunities are going to come up. I'm not opposed to any kind of a trade if it makes you better, but uh, you know, they brought in Jim Boylan uh, to be their defensive guy. Uh, you know, I'm not there at practice. I don't know what kind of job he's doing, but uh, you do have to wonder what kind of job is being done as far as coaching the defense. I know a lot of people would love to see Dan Burke come back. I have no idea what his contract situation is in Philly, but um you know, certainly they're going to have to be better defensively. And again, they have shown an ability to be good defensively. They could certainly be better than what they have been with the personnel that they have. But some of these guys just don't want to play it. You know, some of these guys aren't attuned to it. Buddy Hill jumps out at me that way. I know, I mean, I give Rick credit. Rick has kind of made him play it. 
decently at times. He's uh, he's taken him out of games when he hasn't played. If you got a minute, I got a good buddy healed story related to defense from when he was in Sacramento. Um, if we have time for that, um, he uh, he he's just a guy who uh, has never had to play it, and he really didn't want to. And he's not really built to be a really strong defender. So you're always going to have a problem there on the perimeter if he is uh, one of your starting guards. What is the story with Heald in Sacramento? Because I would be yeah, interested Yeah, when here. he was yeah. in Sacramento, this is when uh, Luke Walton was their coach. And this comes to me from a Pacer basketball staffer, and he confirmed it uh, with Tyrese Halliburton, who was Buddy's teammate in Sacramento. But when they were in Sacramento together, you know, the Kings were bad. Luke Walton's the coach. They gave up like 154 points to some team uh, and just a disastrous defensive game. So they're in – video session the next day and Luke Walton's watching video with the guys and he finally gets up and says look I'm getting out of here you guys need to figure this out on your own you're not listening to me you guys talk among yourselves and you decide how we get better defensively so Luke Walton leaves the room and about 20 seconds go by and nobody says a word and then finally Buddy speaks up and says I just think we need to score more <laughs> you know, that was that was his solution to defensive issues. Let's just score more. Yeah. I'll score them. You know, <laughs> and that's kind of you can tell that's his, been the been his uh, mentality. And I think Rick Carlisle again has done a good job about you know leaning on him and getting him to play it better. I think a lot of guys who haven't been good defenders can be okay if you make them. You know, Nate, Nate McMillan made guys like Boyan Bogdanovich and T.J. Warren be okay yeah. defensively. You know, you just gotta focus on it in practice and take them out if they don't do it and just require it. And I think Rick's done that for the most part with Buddy. But, again, he's been such a poor shooter off the bench that to get the most out of him, you almost have to start him. So, again, that'll be interesting to see tonight. But they do – they definitely have to be better defensively, and you can address that, uh, again, with some lineup changes and uh, just make it a requirement. Like, hey, if you want to start and play, you got to play defense. Yeah, shoot or shoot. Uh, that when you look that up in the dictionary, that's what uh, a picture of Buddy Heald is there, right? So I'm <laughs> yeah, not surprised absolutely. at all that that he would make that sort of comment. We're talking with Mark Monteith, longtime Pacers writer and IBJ columnist. Um, I know it's been about a week. I, I believe it was last Thursday that uh, that George McGinnis passed, um, and there's been a lot of talk about his legacy. Um, and and there are so many beloved players here. Um, in Indiana, but because, you know, he, he kind of had the, the slick Leonard type resume where every aspect of his career touched Indiana in some way. Is there a special place? And, and it's not a competition right between him and Mel Daniels and Roger Brown or eventually Reggie Miller. But um, is there somewhat of a, a special connection that George had with Indiana? Because so much of what he accomplished as a player and, and did in his life was, was right here in the Hoosier State. Yeah, no question. You know, I, he, to me, if you judge all the high school players who have come out of Indiana, there's a tier of three guys that stands above everyone else. You know, and that would be uh, George McGinnis, Larry Bird, and Oscar Robertson. It, hard to judge Johnny Wooden because there really wasn't. <laughs> you know, there was pro basketball when he came out of college, but it wasn't like today. So, sure. I mean, Wooden was as good a player as there was in the first half of the 20th century. But those three guys jump out at you. Then you got guys like Rick Mount, you know, who are college All-Americans, other guys like that. But to me, those three guys, they're all in the Naismith Hall of Fame, right? So they stand uh, kind of on their own group. And George didn't have the pro career that Bird or Oscar Robertson had, but he is a Hall of Famer, and he, he did it 
uh, in Indiana on all three levels, whereas Oscar Robertson didn't play college or pro ball in the state and Bird didn't play pro ball in the state. George McGinnis did it in, within the state boundaries on all levels. And then he came back to Indiana. When he retired, you know, he got cut by the Pacers in the fall of 82, and he was kind of bitter about that. He went to Denver for a few years. But then he came back in the mid-'80s, and from that point on, he was here. And uh, he had such a good reputation that people really wanted to help him. He did a lot of different things uh, throughout the 80s, you know, broadcasting and other things. Hoosier Lottery, State Farm Insurance, or maybe it's Farm Bureau, I forget which. And then he started his own business in 1992, and it goes on today. So he was always in the community, and everybody who had an interaction with him in the community, you know, had a pleasant one. He was just by his nature such a nice guy. And, you know, I was with him a lot. You know, I, I spent a lot of time with him the last few years, just research purposes for a book I wanted to do down the road. And so I'd go over to his house and we'd talk and we'd go out to lunch. And, you know, he obviously interacts so well with the mm-hmm. public. Uh, just such a nice person by nature. So I just think the combination of playing on all levels within the state, coming back to the state, being a businessman here and doing other things, and just being so, uh, you know, outgoing with the general public, uh, does put him in a special category, quite a unique category, really. I saw an interview that he did just totally randomly, and, and this would have been shortly after his playing career, so like late 80s era, where he was talking about collecting expensive, like, clocks. Um, oh, yeah, he did that with a uh, – uh, yeah, I saw that. And, you know, and that surprised me too because I never – Yeah, I'd never heard, heard that about before. That. I completely stumbled upon it. It was weird, yeah. Yeah, it was who is with a former player. Who was the former player that he did that with? I forget I, who it yeah, was. Now, yeah, that interview. I, I don't remember. But anyway, I could tell you, you know, I mean, I was in his house a lot over in the guest area, and he didn't have a clock collection over there now. So <laughs> he got rid of those clocks somehow. Huh. But that was, yeah, that was news to me that he got into collecting clocks. And he, he didn't have any hobbies, you know, later on. You know, uh, his house was very nice and very nicely kept and all that. But he didn't have a bunch of his trophies around. He didn't have, he wasn't collecting anything that I ever saw. So at some point that hobby went by the wayside. Yeah. An incredible player that wasn't into the fact that he was an incredible player, which is always endearing. Uh, just a, yeah, very a, a humble, very humble yeah. at Mark Monteith on X and Twitter, IBJ.com for his columns as well. Mark, happy holidays and best wishes to 24. Um, I know I've, I've still got know your phone number by heart. So you'll still be hearing from me next year as well, but appreciate the time today on the show. All right. Thank you, Derek.